Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled License to Steal. Our author, Ray W. Rowney Jr., joins me from Tennessee today to talk about this book that covers truth and justice. He says they're inseparable. Welcome, Ray, to the program. Thank you. Good to be here, Jay. This is an extensive book, 349 pages. You've also been involved in the creation of a nonprofit organization called Christian Self-Help. And then you've decided to leave your entire estate and all proceeds from the sale of your book to ensure its long-term support. Why did you do so? In the early 1990s, my wife and I were updating our wills and believing strongly that God had blessed each of us as well as our son and our daughter. We wanted to leave everything to honor God and help those less fortunate. This helped was not to be a free handout, as our government does, but a loving hand up that those helped might become self-supporting and pass along the good news of Christ. Christian Self-Help was incorporated in January of 1992. As a result of our attorney advising that there was no existing organization with such a broad and general purpose. I have served as the treasurer ever since, and our all-volunteer managing board of directors, which represents at least 12 different local Christian denomination churches, and that is to ensure that we don't drift from the Bible's directives, and to ensure that every dollar contributed by the general public goes to serve others with no operating or fundraising overhead costs and no facilities. I also created a private operating foundation, the CSH, Administrative Charitable Trust, which exclusively supports Christian self-help in all of its uh, operating costs. Why do you believe our national motto, In God We Trust, and American Free Enterprise Capitalism, defines the true American dream? I believe the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor beckons all who long for a new life, where they could worship God as they each believed, and each had the opportunity to develop their God-given talents and skills to the fullest extent possible, also reaping the rewards from their hard efforts. I believe it was this complete trust in God and the tireless work ethic of Americans that blessed our nation and enabled it to become God's shining light to the rest of the world. For the first 186 years of our nation, until the 1960s when the courts turned on God. As Tom Brokaw aptly described in his book, The Greatest Generation, World War II demonstrated the average American's uncommon willingness to put his life on the line that others might enjoy the same freedoms and liberties as available here in America. You believe in volunteerism. Why did you volunteer to serve as a bondholder rep 
in a Chapter 11 U.S. bankruptcy court proceeding in New York City and continue to do so for the past 16 years without any pay. In 1994, I chose to cease all forms of employment for pay, and I began and became a full-time Christian volunteer in my local community. I'm located in northeast Tennessee, about 70 miles east of Knoxville, right in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. I served on the governing board of my local church, on which I was responsible for mission and evangelism, founded an emergency shelter called Opportunity House, served on the board and continued to serve as financial advisor to the Greenville-Green County Community Ministries which is our local food bank, and it also handles all other forms of aid other than housing. And I helped co-found a group called United Prayer Fellowship, which is a non-denominational effort promoting the need to recognize God in America. I committed my life to God to ensure and answer whatever calls he placed upon me. In early 1999, when a relatively new company in which I had invested $180,000 in convertible bonds suddenly went bankrupt. I was called and asked by counsel to the creditors if I would be willing to serve as a volunteer bondholder rep, and I felt that this was God's new calling for me. In writing License to Steal, why did you write this book, and why do you want people to read it? Initially, when I agreed to serve as an unpaid volunteer bondholder rep in the Chapter 11 reorganization bankruptcy proceeding, I was advised by those who uh, recruited me that this would be a speedy reorganization plan confirmation and it would all happen within six months. When a revised third modified plan was not conformed until four years later, and only after replacement of the creditor's counsel, I felt maybe God's call was for me to shed some light on bankruptcy court procedures and uh, the problems you run into. After seven more years in the New York Supreme Court and the New Jersey Superior Court seeking redress for breaches of bankruptcy court agreements, I felt maybe the call had been expanded for me to address glaring weaknesses in the entire U.S. legal system. As I watched President Obama's transformation of the U.S., using the same fraudulent tactics but also deemed legal that were employed in the courts, I came to believe the book is a critical call to action to all American citizens to promptly fix the U.S. legal system and our federal government before the individual freedoms and liberties which we all enjoy are lost, maybe forever. You're involved in the organization Christian Self-Help. Why is Christian Self-Help and your book, why do you feel it's so important to America at this present time? It's now been 50 years since prayers and Bible reading were removed from our public schools. I'm 76, and I can't remember any time in my history when our country has been facing so many scandals which continue to go unanswered, from the Benghazi Four murders to the IRS being used to obstruct political opponents to failures and cover-ups at the VA to service our wounded veterans 
to removing the work requirements from government assistance programs, from failures to enforce immigration laws, and thus encourage the illegal dumping of uh, women and children at our borders, the risk continues to grow. With Obamacare, the centerpiece of this uh, presentation of information, America must have working, surviving models of God's absolute truth. If not our government, then an organization like Christian Self-Help, if the vision of our founders is to be preserved. I'm sure you have some opinions about the current president, President Obama. What do you feel is so wrong with President Obama's transformation of the United States, and why? In short, it's exchanging America's prior greatness for good in the world for becoming just another humanly flawed socialist state, which is doomed to the failures of human history as proven over the last 2,000 recorded years. The congressionally caused financial crisis of 2008 clearly reveals what I believe are the four steps of this transformation. Step one, create a crisis and claim that only the government is capable of solving it. Senator Dodd and Congressman Frank pressured banks to reduce their lending requirements so that all people could own their own homes. Then they promptly authored the Dodd-Frank financial reform package to fix this crisis that they just created. Step two, create a new government agency to lead the solution. In this case, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, <laughs> when it was the banks that needed protection from irresponsible consumers. Step three, appoint costly new permanent leadership, who in this case will protect irresponsible consumers from high overdraft fees when they routinely were the ones that wrote the checks that exceeded their available cash balances. Step four, confiscate the free enterprise industry you wish to control. In this case, the banks, which are crucial to America's well-being. Result, socialism in four easy steps, all fraudulent. Ray, what do you believe is the single most important root cause for the current failure of both the U.S. legal system and our hopelessly deadlocked federal government? The substitution of human values for God's in making our court decisions and guiding our nation. Thus, we have replaced God's truth and justice with human greed and selfishness. In 1930, the U.S. replaced the Bible and the Constitution with case law as the basis for determining what, quote, the law means. Rather than God's absolute truth, judges were to be guided by evolving, trending prior decisions in which bad decisions were given equal treatment with good, meaning no fixed standards for right and wrong. In like manner, our current federal government is continually urging judges to reinterpret what the Constitution means to permit actions which are contrary to the intentions of our founders. By constitutional law, interpretations of the law are to be those of the authors of the law, not humanly trending preferences. Ray, who do you believe bears the ultimate responsibility to fix the glaring weaknesses? in the operation of both the United States courts and our federal government. Why have things gotten so bad? 
In our form of government, which we call democracy, the legal citizens elect representatives to make decisions on their behalf. Thus, if the elected representatives fail to act properly, the voters must speak at the polls. Sadly, things have gotten as bad as they are due to us, the voting citizens, failing to heed JFK's sage advice, which was... Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. License to Steal was written as a call to action that voters might take back their country. We must vote not to line our own pockets with someone else's money, but protect and preserve the America that provided the greatest generation during World War II, that our children and our grandchildren might also experience the original American dream. Frankly, if a voter receives government assistance for which they did not previously pay, that conflict of interest should require abstention from voting until remedied. To do otherwise is pure folly. Ray, thank you for sharing your passion behind the book, License to Steal. Truth and justice are inseparable. Our author, Ray W. Rowney, Jr. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? I think the easiest way is to check the website, which is all small letters, com. It'll give you complete information, instructions, and it'll also give you highlights, and there's even a, a nice little uh, vocal presentation that you might enjoy. It's only 60 seconds. Excellent, Ray. Thank you for joining me today. Again, the... Organization that you're supporting is Christian Self-Help Incorporated. This book titled License to Steal. Thank you, Ray, for joining me today. I appreciated it and I greatly appreciate your opportunity to allow me to speak with you. Fabulous. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pope Pius Twelfth and World War II, The Documented Truth, a compilation of international evidence revealing the wartime acts of the Vatican. And the author is Gary Krupp, and Gary joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Gary. 
Good afternoon. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, you call this really uh, revealing the worst character assassination of the 20th century, uh, dealing with Pope Pius XII. And, and uh, it all deals with the Jewish community and how it sounded like he was portrayed as anti-Semitic, and yet he was a defender of the Jews. That's correct. And not only a defender of the Jews, is actually responsible from as early as 1917 for the creation of the modern state of Israel in Palestine. Well, we'll learn more about Pope Pius Twelfth in a moment. But first, Gary, why the book? Uh, and, you know, a little bit about yourself as well, but, you know, what led you to write your book? Our foundation, Pave the Way Foundation, deals with gestures and obstacles between religions. It opens up, we open up pathways. We pave the way towards better relations between the faiths by dealing with these issues. Uh, we don't deal in theology at all, but we do deal in obstacles, diplomatic problems, uh, uh, technical problems, educational, things of that nature, plus gestures, historic gestures. And Pope Pius XII uh, is, remains one of the greatest obstacles between Jews and Catholics today, impacting over a billion people. Uh, and this is why we ultimately we, we started this. The book itself actually was, it came from a program. We, we held a, a symposium in Rome in, 2000, in 2008, just revealing to 80 Jewish scholars what we had discovered. Documents, proof. And these are all on our website, by the way. Anyone can access these for free. There's no charge. You just have to agree that this is copyrighted material belonging to the Holy See in many cases, and you can't use it for commercial purposes. Once you've done that, you have access to, the, to that page, and we have over 76,000 pages of documents. We have newspaper articles, uh, eyewitness interviews, interviews from some of the most prominent historians in the world agreeing with what we're saying. And the book actually started out as sort of a program guide for that symposium, and it actually evolved into a book only recently as we kept adding to it. And so uh, it's, a, it's, um, it's a responsibility. This is very simply a responsibility that we have to do to, to uh, bring the truth forward and end this, the lies that have been said about this. And they've been further supported by many people with very high academic credentials. Uh, and the bottom line is that uh, if you Google me, you'll see that a lot of people, they call me an amateur, they call me every name in the book. I said, but I'm also not an idiot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the jury system is a very clear system where you hear evidence, you see inf uh, documentation and proof, and you come up with a conclusion. That's all I'm asking everybody to do. Just read it. Just look at it. Come up with your own conclusion. The problem has been that all of those so-called historians from all the most prominent universities who've come up publicly condemning him, calling him Hitler's pope, calling him anti-Semitic, calling him uh, a Nazi collaborator, all those who, people who've put their reputation on the line are up in arms, and they're all, of course, no, um, understandably upset because it showed that they're frauds, by and large. They have not done any original research. What they've done is they've read the books from other people who have not done any original research. We've done original research, and we leave it to the reader to come up with your own conclusion. Why was he libeled, slandered through this, uh, as you put it, a very calculated process driven by various hidden agendas? So tell yes, us about well, that. Yes, well, we've come across, this is actually, uh, anyone can go online and look at 
uh, Moscow's assault on the Vatican. And what that is, is the, it's the part of the disinformation program of the uh, f- former Soviet Union, the KGB, has a, an entire network of manipulating media and, and information in order to drive their agenda. Stalin and Khrushchev both despised Pius XII personally, because he was very anti-communist, and they were both equally anti-Semitic. And so at the very moment the Catholic Church changed its position on other religions, including Judaism, during the Second Ecumenical Council, they developed this program called Seat 12 to destroy Pius XII's reputation. And the way they did it is that they, they produced a play with a German communist by the name of Rolf Holkoff, and it was rewritten by Erwin uh, Biscotta, a very prominent producer, and became a very, very successful play called The Deputy. And this was played strategically all over the world, 1964 approximately, different places, and instantly changed the world opinion on Pius XII, when prior to that, literally every rabbi, every Jewish organization, everybody praised him unreservedly as the only religious leader who actually acted to save, to mitigate the suffering specifically for Jews during the war. So it's a very, very unfortunate reality that we came across, but Pius XII is really only the tip of the iceberg because this disinformation program is still being carried out today, not by the KGB, but the FSB. And we see this through a lot of the manipulation of information and media in the Middle East and in, in all over the world. And it's really, you know, they're master chess players and they know precisely what they're doing. And even, I remember, uh, Mayor Sir, Say Tung had said a, that a lie told, sold a, a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth, and this is the problem. Everyone believes this to be true. When you and you know, it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite of the truth in almost every single point. And we see that today. We see it today in the Middle East that you know somebody will accuse somebody of being a Nazi, for example, and in fact they're acting like Nazi. You know, it's it's just an amazing uh, you know program. But it it succeeds. It's working. It creates problems, creates hatred, it creates animosity. And thus, one of your chapters is titled, The Vatican Guilty Until Proven Innocent. Exactly. And the fact is, that's the way it is. But if you go back, as we did, and any any listener can get on the Internet, go to the New York Times archives or the Palestine Post archives, which is the predecessor to the Jerusalem Post, and just put the search in, or any newspaper, any place, put the search in Pope, Pius XII, Jews, 1939 to 1958, and you will be shocked by what you find. And what you will find is not one negative news article, not one out of the thousands that you will find. What they are are how the Pope did speak out against the persecution of Jews in Romania and, 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 and so on, and, and Slovakia, and in Italy, and in France, and so on, and how he was helping and how he was praised by all the chief rabbis and everything else. It's exactly the opposite. And yet the most amazing thing is that every one of these make-believe historians, and by the way, today a historian is not a, that's not a science, it's an art. It's an art of telling a story. Right. And the fact is, it's not an accurate, an, an accurate one. But not one of these people have ever bothered to actually do that research. It's real simple. Anyone can do it from their computer. And that nobody ever went to the trouble of doing it. So now all of these people are going to be proven to be frauds. And it really should, it should mean something as far as our educational system is concerned, because these people have tenure, and they're, <laughs> and they're in there, and they, they're just, it's, it's, it was the most shocking thing that I came across. Uh, as as we proceeded with this project. 
So in reality, how many lives were saved? Well, we can't really be for sure. We can't tell for sure. But prior to the deputy, one of the most prominent at that time, an Israeli ambassador and historian by the name is Pincus Lapida, had done a study on it. And he said that because of the efforts of the Roman Catholic Church under the papacy of Pius XII and the instructions of Pius XII, almost 847,000 Jews were saved during the war. Now, that m- number is a significant number, and I'll tell you why. Most people don't know this, but in the entire world, there are only 16 million Jews today. There are more Scientologists in the world than there are Jews in the world. There's 1.2 billion ca- Roman Catholics, 1.3 billion Muslims, 1 billion, 100 million other Christian denominations, and 16 million Jews. It's two-tenths of 1% of the world's population. Now, 847,000 Jews in 1945 today represents 25% of the entire world's Jewish population is alive because of the efforts of the Catholic Church. And when Jews specifically hate this man, that's a sin in Judaism. That's when one of the worst character flaws you can have in Judaism, which is uh, ingratitude. So how did this myth of Hitler's Pope come about? Well, it was a very, very, very well-marketed, uh, very mar- well-marketed uh, device, uh, and especially when you look at the, the author, John Cornwell, who wrote Hitler's Pope. That actually, the phrase originally came from the Russians in 1945. Why did they do it? They tried to attack him, but the problem was it fell flat on its face. Why? Everyone was still alive from the war, and they were, if you go online, you see these newspaper articles, you're going to see Jews are defending Pius XII, and on, this one's defending him, and on and on and on. People were outraged by it. But what, they, what did they do? They sat back, they waited one generation, and now this whole new crop of, of, of new people are coming up, now they're buying it hook, line, and sinker. And so this, is, this has been a problem. But uh, Hitler's Pope was picked up by John Cornwell, and if you look at the cover of Hitler's Pope... That's a lie from the beginning. I have the original credit on my, in my book on uh, the cover. It's a picture of supposedly Cardinal... It's, the original chip said Cardinal Pacelli leaving Nazi uh, German government headquarters in March of 1939. That's what it says in the book. The fact is, uh, Pacelli had left Germany in 1929, never to return. He, uh, that's actually a picture, of, a 1927 picture of Archbishop Pacelli leaving von Hindenburg's birthday party. And from that, plus the fact that Mr. Cornwell represented himself as going, spending months on end in the Vatican archives, having access to the war years, which is not true. Why do we know it's not true? Because we know precisely where he was. He was in the Vatican archives for during a per, over a period of, t- of three weeks for perhaps two hours, only to d- number one, and only covering the open archives, which was 1912 to 1914. He, he claims that he studied Pius XII from as early as 1912, but he didn't say it ended 1914, <laughs> when Pius was still a young priest, you, uh, because he didn't have access to, those, to the war years. Those are still closed because they're still being cataloged. They're not quite cataloged yet. So we, that's all he had. He had access to certain records in the, uh, during the course of Pius XII, but we were told by uh, some of the people at the Vatican that he, could, he, he, he couldn't understand them because he doesn't speak Latin, French, German, or Italian. And so he made these claims and so on and sold it, hook, line, and sinker, and sold made millions of dollars selling this book and made a lot of people. And there are a lot of people out there that would like to attack the church, and this is just another reason to do it. And I'm not a Roman Catholic, but the fact is you can't, 
you cannot say that you you know that you can't uh, you cannot attack them for uh, for the, the the work the good work that they did and the and the the fantastic effort they made and how many people died trying to save Jewish uh, uh, refugees. It's quite remarkable. And Pius the Twelfth, uh, he did what he did even under direct threats to his own life. Is it's exactly right. There was we have the original trans uh, the original translation and the original documents of General Karl Wolf who was the commandant of Italy, who was ordered by Adolf Hitler to develop a plan to invade the Vatican, kill the Roman Curia, that's all of the bishops and cardinals, seize the Vatican Library and Museum, and to kidnap Pius XII. It was a very elaborate plan uh, that, was, uh, that they, had, uh, they had developed. And Pius XII knew this was going to happen and fully expected to be killed. In fact, one document which has not been made public yet, but I did see it, was a meeting that uh, Pius XII had with the Cardinals September 6, 1943, where he states, I'm going to be kidnapped and killed. The moment anyone enters Vatican State territory, they are to leave Vatican immediately and, and form a government in exile in Portugal. In my letter, in my desk is my letter of resignation. Because when they come to get me, they will drag Eugenio Pacelli out, not Pius XII. So this was a real threat. And if you go through the, the uh, published documents, which even a lot of historians use, they'll see that there were many, many references to an imminent invasion and how they were going to deal with the Vatican uh, Museum and how were they going to protect the library and so on and so forth. And we, there's also a letter in there from the Vatican Secretary of State ordering the director of the Swiss Guard not to resist with firepower. With, in other words, don't resist invading Germans because they're going to be killed. You can't take picks and against machine guns. So we ordered them to stand down in case of an invasion. It's a huge story. It's a very, it's very unfortunate because we can't seem to get anybody, you know, any of the critics today to even look at any of the material. However, we do have some of the most prominent historians and most recognized historians in the world which say we're 100% correct, one of whom was Sir Martin Gilbert. Um, we have um, the former chancellor of the Sorbonne, uh, um, Edouard Husson, Professor Edouard Husson. We have the, the director, one of the um, directors of German history, uh, Dr. Feldkamp, Dr. Hummel from Germany, uh, huge numbers um, of, of uh, scholars. There's a very, very long list, and every one of them said, you're right. But unfortunately, the media only goes to the negativity and talks about the couple of little little guys uh, here and there who who have made money on this and written books about it and sold them. Well, congratulations, Gary. Gary Krupp, we, he is the author of his book, Pope Pius Twelfth and World War II, The Documented Truth. Gary, what's the best way to get your book? Well, I think, I think you'd uh, just go on to Amazon and you'll be able to get it. It would be the best way. It's available in e-book ver- uh, uh, and in uh, print and uh, soft cover and hard cover versions. But again, we, we didn't do this to sell books. We did it, in fact, our foundation has bought a whole load of them from the publisher. We've paid a lot of money for them, and we've given them away for nothing. Two prominent people to be able to re- understand the truth. That's the purpose of it. So we're not in this to make anything. Uh, if anything comes of it, it's fine, but you know, nothing. we don't expect anything from it. We really simply want to get the truth out and to ter- reverse this. And, uh, and that's, that's our motive. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. 
Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. This is Ex Libris On Air. My name is Brian Houston. We're glad you're here today. We're going to be talking about a a novel today, a fiction novel that is written uh, about a person trying to protect and take care of uh, another person who just doesn't seem to want to be taken care of, it appears. The name of the book is The Deadly Serious Republic, and the author of the book is talking to us from his home in Australia. His name is Dave Crawford. How are you doing, Dave? Uh, very well, thank you, Ron. I'm glad to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on with us. Before we talk about the deadly serious republic, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, well, I recently came from England, but I have lived in Australia now for <clears throat> well, over 50 years. And um, so I, when I arrived here, I uh, was on sheep stations and various things like that. But later on, I went back and uh, improved my education and went to university. And I have a couple of degrees in science, and I have been a a science teacher in Australia. So, uh, yes, it's uh, been an interesting experience. Now, you mentioned, uh, I I read in some of your background, that uh, you say you've had a long and fairly unusual working life. How so? Well, you know, I've sort of uh, come up from uh, from, uh, fairly, you know, um, uh, impoverished sort of conditions and and, um, uh, been to university and uh, and I've seen a fair slab of... uh, of society and of life, and uh, so I'm now in my 70s. So, um, is this the first book that you've tried to write? Uh, no, no, it's one of several. Okay, uh, well, let, let's talk a little bit about the book then. Uh, again, the uh, the title of the book is "The Deadly Serious Republic." Tell me what it's about. Um, there are two main characters. Uh, Max, who's uh, from uh, South America, uh, comes from a very, very impoverished uh, background. Um, he's a very intelligent, level-headed young man. He comes into, uh, goes looking for his uh, lost father. And uh, the other main character is uh, Mimi, who's, um, she's uh, from a very, very wealthy background, uh, but she's uh, orphaned at the age of 12. Very rebellious. Um, she thinks herself to be a communist, but she doesn't actually know very much about communism. And she... Uh, uh, sort of goes looking for revolutions, and Max becomes her friend and bodyguard, and he's sort of desperately trying to trying to uh, keep her safe. And so I was correct when I said this is a person that just did not want to be taken care of. That's right, exactly, yes. Well, she sounds like she's a person who uh, comes from a bit of privilege and uh, is a little bit spoiled, perhaps? Oh, yes, yes. But she's sort of very rebellious, and she's... Uh, 
um, you know, she's she's sort of looking for for adventure and things of this nature. But she's um, yeah, it's a rather mixed up sort of character. But, uh, and uh, yeah, she comes from a very very wealthy background, and there are people who are sort of out to get her. And so thus ensues the uh, adventure that goes on with this book. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the characters in the book. Uh, first of all, why did you decide to write this book and about this particular uh, story? Well, I sort of have, uh, you know, it's a satirical book. I mean, it's great fun to write it, but uh, there are some underlying sort of issues there with which I'm sort of concerned about, particularly um, inequality in in, uh, in society and, and uh, how that affects people. And I feel that. Uh, you know, there are certain political uh, undertones in this story. Would you say that any of this is controversial? Um, well, some people might find it that way. What part of it would you consider to be something that might be considered controversial? Well, I think that capitalism needs to be um, working for the benefit of society as a whole, and sometimes I see uh, issues um, like that that um, where that's not really the case. Um, you know, the big... Uh, um, economic collapse in uh, 2008 and things of that nature, sort of people doing their own thing and not necessarily looking out for the wider community. So, the, yeah, so it's not that's you know, I mean, it, at times there it, uh, it sort of touches on those sort of issues. Uh, you also, in some of the background that I read getting ready for the interview, uh, there was some uh, talk about uh, the political issues involved here, and I guess that's concerning the uh, the communism versus capitalism. Is that fair to say? Yes, I don't. I don't get into to, to cap, uh, communism to any extent because um, Mimi doesn't know very much about it. She sort of turns away from that to, to some extent, and she. But um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting sort of area to look at. And then I guess just based on the the main characters, uh, you talk about the contrast between these two characters and I, and what they represent. Uh, can you talk about that? Well, we've got sort of. Max is, to, you know, he's level-headed and sensible, um, but he knows a lot about the, um, the more difficult sides of, uh, of society. And uh, whereas Mimi is sort of very naive in many respects, and uh, she's rather vulnerable in some ways, um, particularly when sort of people are sort of after her because they're after her money and things of this nature. But you say that there's a, there's plenty to laugh at in this book. Oh, yes, yes, it's full of jokes. <laughs> Who's your target audience in a book like this? Who are you trying to get to read this book? Probably, uh, I would think, university students, but anybody sort of over the age of about 16. Uh, it's not really for, for kids, but anybody over about the age of 16, all that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think it would appeal to a wide range of, of people. Give me a highlight of the book. Tell me about one particular area of the book, maybe a little teaser that uh, give us a taste of what the book is about and uh, maybe a, a highlight point in the book that you'd make sure that you want people to take note of. Um, right, well, there's lots of highlights in the book. Um, That's good. Uh, one, <laughs> <laughs> one stage, uh, Mimi goes off to... Um, uh, what she feels to be the, the, the sort of centre of communism, which is the Great Red Mountain. She gets there and finds the place is actually um, a sort of a touristy sort of place, and uh, she's looking for the buyer for the um, you know the tourist centre there and buying 
uh, souvenirs and things of this nature. So it's a sort of a bit of a send-up of, of um, both of communism, but also the way it gets commercialised or can be commercialised. Now, you uh, you say you're from England, and then now you live in Australia, but you decided to make the setting of this book America. Why? Well, it actually sort of has sorts of problems that are applicable right across the world, I think, to, to quite a large extent. But so I would see America as being the sort of the most um, dynamic of, of, uh, of the Western countries, really. When you were uh, putting together the story and developing your two main characters, uh, I, I take it that you, obviously you've probably come across people of both types of personalities, uh, folks that you've experienced in, in person? Um, not as uh, quite as wild <laughs> as Mimi is, no, no. That's where, that's where poetic character. license comes in, right? That's right, exactly, yes. But uh, you talk about yeah, uh, developing those characters, and, and you, I know that uh, in, again, the background that uh, you wrote, uh, you were talking about how fleshing these characters out, once that took place, then it was a pretty easy book to write. That's right. Well, this is the, the one, because it's not my first attempt at writing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I play around with characters, and I see how they get a mix and match w- with the different uh, characters within the book, see how they... Uh, how they might uh, spark off each other, and um, yeah. So once once it that part's over, it's, uh, and I've got some idea as to where the um, uh, where the the story will end. It's like a sort of light at the end of the tunnel, and after that, it just sort of almost writes itself. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, about twelve months. And so, and you told me you had written some other books. Are these books similar in nature to uh, this book? Um, yes, or not always, no. Um, Navy City Republic is, is distinctly, you know, it has political, as I said, political overtones to it, but some of the others don't. I've got another book which is going through the publishing process now, and that's set in Australia, which is The Golden Man. Okay. And um, there, yeah, so that's, that's social comment on, on Australian society, but it's it's not particularly political or such. So when it's all said and done, what uh, would you like for the person who has read, read The uh, Deadly Republic, what would you like for them to take away from the book? What would you like for them to feel and, and think after they've read your book? Um, I don't think they just need to think a little bit more about the way in society is running, um, it's, um, uh, some of the pressures in society, uh, some of the ways um, things might be improved in the future. Okay. Tell me where we can find your book, The Deadly Republic. Uh, it's published by Glibberus, which is an e-publisher. So if you get on the internet, you'd find it there. Um, I think it's a, there is also a print run being run in the um, uh, in the United States. So that's going through now. So there may be in some of the bookshops, hopefully around the place. And is there anything that uh, we haven't covered about your book that you'd like to uh, to add? Is there anything that you feel that uh, you need to communicate to those out there who might be considering reading this book? Yeah, it's just a, it's just a good read, uh, and it's it's, um, it's sort of you know I mean it's satirical and sort of pokes fun at people and <laughs> and society in some ways, but it, it as I said it has a, a serious undertones to it. So you find do you enjoy writing those kind of books, those satirical books? Oh yes, yes, it was good good fun writing it. Yes. So I, I take it that uh, you have a pretty good sense of humor then about life itself. 
Oh, right, yes, yes, I think so. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, uh, again, we want to uh, thank you very much for coming on today to uh, talk to us about the book. Uh, once again, the name of the book is The Deadly Serious Republic. It's written by Dave Crawford. Dave, good luck with the book. We, uh, we thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you very much, Brian. And we hope that people will be sure to check out the book. Again, the the name of the book is The Deadly Serious Republic. It's written by Dave Crawford, and it's published, of course, by Ex Libris. So be sure and check out the Ex Libris website or Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble and so forth and see if you can find the book and be sure to uh, read it and enjoy the book. I'm Brian Houston. This is Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much for listening. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.